Good morning, everybody. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. These days, part of our experience of Advent is the constant temptation to fast forward to Christmas, isn't it? Christmas has a tendency to constantly sort of seep back into Advent in various ways. There are already Christmas decorations everywhere we look. Christmas music is all around us. Uh, Despite my best efforts to keep my seasonal playlists pure, uh, my son Aiden has been blasting O Holy Night and the Carol of the Bells for weeks already, And and we love him for it. And like so many others, including many of you, I'm sure, our family has also capitulated to cultural pressure and put up our tree. But what does it really matter if we jump the gun a little bit? Isn't Advent the anticipation of Christmas after all? Does it really matter if we kind of combine the anticipation of Christmas with Christmas itself? Well, without wanting to be a joyless Advent police, (laughs) I want to suggest that it is very much worth observing Advent as Advent. And that if we do jump ahead to Christmas too quickly, we can end up foreclosing on the very thing that Advent wants to teach us. Throughout the church's history, Advent has been a dark season, a season for sober reflection. In Advent, we put ourselves intentionally back into the time before Christ came. Yes, we know the light is coming. We know, in fact, that it has already come. But Advent remains an invitation to sit in the darkness for a while. Even though we live now in the A.D., in the year of our Lord, in Advent we put ourselves back in the B.C., the time before Christ. The poet Michael, uh, Malcolm Geit says this, The whole purpose of Advent is to be for a moment fully and consciously before Christ. And as the hymn says, which we have already sung this morning, we choose to wait in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. That means that in Advent we choose to sit in the darkness for a while. Not only the darkness of the world all around us, but the darkness of our own hearts too. Because Advent has also historically been a penitential season an invitation to look frankly at the sin of our world and the sin in our own hearts and to turn away from it. I took a couple of drawing classes in high school, and I always remember one particular direction that our teachers used to give us. Make your darks very dark, they would say, and your lights bright white. The tendency for beginning drawers is to kind of default to making your whole drawing the same scale, the same sort of shade of gray, somewhere in the middle. But no, they told us, use your softest pencils, 
to get the darkest shadows black, and then let the white paper itself be the lightest lights. Or if you're using brown paper like we usually were, use a piece of chalk or a white pencil to pick out the highlights. To draw everything in the same limited range of shades will make your drawing dull and flat. It needs both the darkest darks and the lightest lights to come alive. It's the contrast that gives it real dynamism. In the same way, if we blend Advent and Christmas together, we will lose the sense of contrast and crisis that Advent is supposed to bring. If we aren't willing to sit in the darkness of Advent, the light of Christmas will not shine so brightly. If we aren't willing to reckon with the darkness of our sinful world, Christmas will not be necessary or joyful. But amid all this darkness, Advent remains a season of hope. It is not a season of despair or of cynicism or of nihilism. Somehow in Advent, Christians are able to look steadily at the darkness of the world with perfect candor, without sugarcoating it or soft-pedaling anything, without rushing ahead prematurely to the light and joy of Christmas, and yet without despair. How is that possible? The answer to that question is the proclamation of John the Baptist, which is usually read on this second Sunday of Advent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Maybe you don't often think of the call to repentance as a word of hope. Repentance is deeply uncomfortable to us. Our tendency is to avoid it. Isn't the idea of repentance actually bad news? The news that we are sinful, that we are still full of selfishness and anger and lust and covetousness. But no, John the Baptist's voice calling out in the wilderness for God's people to repent is the necessary starting place for all Christian hope. The hope of Advent begins with the call to repentance. Any other starting place will inevitably minimize the reality of our situation. The only reason Christians are able to look frankly at the darkness all around without despair is that God still holds out the possibility of repentance. Repentance is a door left ajar, an opportunity to turn away from sin and toward the redemption that Christ will bring. We say it every morning in morning prayer. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The opportunity to repent is still open, but it will not be open forever. John the Baptist's word is an urgent word, but it is a word of hope. To turn away from our sins is always to turn toward the salvation that Christ brings. That's why John's preaching must have filled the Israelites themselves with excitement and hope. Remember, they had not had a prophet for a long time. For some 400 years, God had been silent. They had returned from exile, yes, but their situation was still far from ideal. They had been conquered and oppressed first by the Greeks, 
now by the Romans. The promised land was still occupied territory. The promises of the Old Testament prophets, even the most recent ones, seemed very distant now. Had God abandoned them? But now a prophet has arisen again, a prophet very much in the Old Testament mode. The New Testament sees John as the epitome of, an Old Te- of the Old Testament prophetic tradition. That is at least partly the point of John's bizarre getup. His costume of camel's hair and a leather belt is exactly what 2 Kings tells us that Elijah had worn. John looked exactly like a prophet was supposed to look, and he acted like a prophet was supposed to act. What's more, the old prophets had said that another Elijah was coming who would prepare the way for the Lord. Malachi had said this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So no wonder the people went out to see John the Baptist in such numbers. It wasn't only their idle curiosity at this spectacle of a wild man out in the desert. They recognized in John that God was moving again. God was finally speaking to them again. John was not only a new prophet, he was a prophet whose coming had been foretold to them and who was supposed to prepare the way for a great and mighty act of God, what the Old Testament prophets called the great and terrible day of the Lord. So as harsh and abrasive as John's message of repentance was, it was to the people of Israel still a message of great hope. They understood that their repentance meant that something else, something greater, was coming. God was getting ready to act. John's sermon is very simple. <laughs> like all the best preachers, he had only one point to make. <laughs> Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That simple message was enough to bring the people out to him in great numbers. It says that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John doesn't rail at these people. He preaches repentance, and then he baptizes whoever receives his message. But there is another group here, the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're the ones who provoke John's anger, and they are the targets for his most furious invective. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? In this, John foreshadows Jesus himself, who always saved his harshest words for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So what is it exactly that makes John so angry at these religious leaders? He knows that their repentance is a sham. That's what he calls out. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's a sarcastic question. The implication is, you're not really here because you fear judgment. You're not really here to repent of your sins. 
Notice it doesn't say whether any of these religious leaders were baptized. And whether they actually went through the act of baptism or not, John knows they are not truly repentant. And this is, I think, the point. John tells them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Real repentance, John says, produces fruit. That's the difference between genuine piety and false piety. If you were really repentant, he's saying, we'd be able to tell. And if you don't produce the fruit of repentance, well, look at verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is another echo of Jesus' own teaching, who more than once makes the same point. Trees are known by their fruit. Good trees produce good fruit, and bad trees produce bad fruit. Trees that produce bad fruit will be cut down. The connection I want to make here, though, is that according to John the Baptist, the fruit of a holy life is the fruit of repentance. It is not the fruit of outward religion, of showy public prayers, large gifts put in the offering plate when everyone's watching, the kind of stuff the Pharisees and Sadducees were known for. The fruit of a holy life, the kind of fruit that gives evidence of a life lived rightly before God, cannot be faked. It always begins with repentance. It begins here at the Jordan River with John the Baptist, responding to his call to repentance with humility and faith. Our confession this morning could almost have been written by John the Baptist himself. When the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. Therefore, in the light of Christ, let us confess our sins. As Christians, we must make this our regular way of life. Martin Luther said that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. Repentance is very hard, almost impossible, if we only do it every once in a while. We have to practice it. We have to learn to die a little every day. That's how our prayer book teaches us to live with confession every morning and evening. And if we do that every day, we will get into the habit. There's something else here, too. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance means to change our life. If I make a list of my sins today and confess them to God, that's good. But if I don't take steps to turn away from them and to turn toward the salvation of God in Jesus Christ, then I'm still living as if God's salvation is not coming. I'm still living as if his righteous judgment is not real. To turn from my sin, to actually turn away from it, takes tangible steps. It takes making changes in my life by the power of the Spirit. And that is an act of Christian hope because it assumes by faith that God's salvation is really on its way. It is to change my life in the present in light of God's future promise. It is to exchange and to keep on exchanging every day my old life with its selfish sinful habits for the new life of Christ built on God's unshakable promise.
So our repentance is an act of faith and hope in the promise of God. But John's message of repentance was not only for the individual Jews who came out to hear him. Like the Old Testament prophets before him, his message was for the whole nation of Israel. That's why, again, like the Old Testament prophets, his sharpest words of judgment are for the religious leaders. They bear greater responsibility since they are the ones leading the whole nation astray. Because John is speaking not only to individual people, but to the whole nation, his message is inescapably corporate. He is taking on the political and religious leaders of his day. Not only the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were certainly political figures as well as religious ones, but also King Herod himself. John would later call out King Herod for his adultery. And that was what would eventually cost John his life. As the herald of the coming of God's kingdom, John took on sin and darkness wherever he found them. And he wasn't shy about calling it out in the leaders, too. He proclaimed God's coming judgment on all evil, and he dragged out hidden sins into the light. The priest and theologian Fleming Rutledge has written a very influential book about Advent, which some of you are probably familiar with. She says this. It's a long quote, but I couldn't find a way to make it shorter. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, She says this. John came proclaiming God's imminent judgment on the venality of governments, the corruption of police departments, the greed of financiers, the selfishness of the rich, the self-righteousness of the religious establishment. There are cover-ups of all sorts. There are families that will not acknowledge the alcoholism that is destroying them. There are people who are making their loved ones miserable but will not go to a therapist. There are secretaries who cover up for bosses, business partners who cover up for each other, colonels for generals, bishops for clergy, parents for children. Advent is the season of the uncovering. Bear fruit that befits repentance. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. This is the right time to root up, to root out the cover-ups in our own lives. As we wait with bated breath for the lights to come on and the announcement of the angel that God is not against us, but for us. End quote. John's word of judgment, John's, ex John's exposing and uncovering of sins is also a word of hope. The promise of coming judgment is terrible, yes, but it means that sin is going to be dealt with. God is not content to leave things as they are. Wrongs are going to be made right. Praise be to God. And this is also John's word of repentance. Judgment is coming. Turn from your sins, or you too will be destroyed. In a sermon that's come down to us from the 5th century, the Bishop Maximus of Turin describes Advent as a time of preparation for the visit of a king. Everyone is cleaning and scrubbing, decorating, getting ready. They're excited, but they're also working very hard because they know that the coming of the king is a big deal. It's a joyful time, but it's also very serious. 
we must make ready. At Advent, our king, at Christmas rather, our king comes. Not in a story or in our imagination, but in reality. He has indeed come in his incarnation as a baby at Bethlehem, and he will indeed come again in his second coming, in power and great glory to judge the living and the dead. Advent is about both of those comings. Our king will come with justice in his hand to strike down sin, death, and the devil, and to make all things right. His coming is, of course, very joyful. It is our great hope, but it's also very sobering. We are not yet ready for him. We have work to do. In Romans 2, Paul says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. What a beautiful phrase. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. It was the kindness of God that sent John the Baptist to call the people from their sins. It would not have been kindness, nor could repentance be in any way hopeful if God's redemption was not coming and if its coming was not completely sure. That is the hope of Advent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.